from the University of Notre Dame, these are Notre Dame stories. In this episode, trend spotting. We chat with a Notre Dame economist whose analysis of fertility rates may hold valuable clues about the economy. And Notre Dame students are getting real-world experience as police officers performing digital forensics as part of a cyber crimes unit. at the decline in fertility that's happened in the U.S. over the last 10 years, I think what's getting a lot of attention is the big number that fertility is down. And there are reasons to be concerned about that that have to do with uh, the sustainability of our public programs and our long-term economic growth. What I would like for people to understand better is that that's happening differently for different people. Casey Buckles is the Brian and Janelle Brady Associate Professor of Economics at Notre Dame. She studies the role the family plays in the economy. Economics at its root is the study of how people make decisions given the world that they face. So, you know, I I think people are familiar with that idea when it comes to thinking about how people spend their money or maybe what jobs they choose. But really, any aspect of human behavior can be understood using the framework that economists have developed. Mm. So that includes really important questions about family, uh, education, religion, uh, poverty. These are all things that economists are studying, including economists here at Notre Dame. So my research is about the economics of the family. So I study questions uh, about how people make decisions about how many children they should have, uh, the timing of those children, and then also how the decisions that they make uh, affect them and affect their children. So you can think about people making a decision about whether they should have a child, right? This is one of the most fundamental, important decisions that a person can make in their life. Um, So, you know, you might be thinking about how much you want to have a child and then also the constraints that you face. So can we afford to have a child? Um, There are biological constraints that people face. Uh, You have to factor in the considerations of your partner. Um, You have to think about uh, the effects that it might have on society, right? Some people think about that. So it's a complex problem and economists have great tools for understanding how people make decisions in the face of uh, constraints like that. Okay. So broadly speaking, what would uh, the fertility rate normally tell us about the economy? Historically, there is a positive relationship between the uh, fertility rate and the economy. So meaning that when the economy is doing well, people tend to have more children. And especially when it's doing poorly or when it's headed for a downturn, people have fewer children. So I have a paper with uh, my colleague here at Notre Dame, Dan Hungerman, and also Steve Lugauer at the University of Kentucky uh, that's called Fertility is a Leading Economic Indicator. So in that paper, we actually put forth this idea that not only are these two things positively related, but actually that Fertility starts to decline even before we see a lot of the other big indicators of an economic downturn. So heading into the Great Recession, for example, you know, I think um, a lot of the big signs that we we were headed for a severe downturn didn't really start happening until mid to late 2008. But fertility actually started to decline in 2007. So we think that's really interesting. It suggests that there was some anxiety or unease about the economy that people were responding to. So people felt it in their pocketbooks and in their households first before we saw it kind of large scale. That's right. You know, there's a saying that um, 
children are the ultimate vote of confidence in the future. And if you think about it that way as a measure of confidence, then we think this makes a lot of sense. So, you know, it may not be that people are actually losing their jobs yet or feeling strong effects of uh, an economic downturn. But if they're starting to feel anxiety, maybe there are conversations at work that suggest that the firm is going to start to pull back uh, or other little things that people are sensing, that could actually affect their decisions to have children. And in fact, we, we've seen that for the last three recessions in the United States, that's been the case. Fertility's declined even before uh, many of the other economic indicators have, have shown the signs of the recession. Hmm. Now, we are in a period of economic recovery Yes. Right now. But we don't necessarily see the historical trend in fertility corresponding. Am I right? That's correct. As I mentioned, historically, when we enter a downturn, fertility starts to fall or falls even a little before the downturn. But also, once we recover, fertility starts to come back. Mm-hmm. For this recession, we are not seeing that. So fertility has been declining in the United States since 2007. Uh, We now have uh, about 400,000 fewer births per year we did in 2017 than we did in 2007. So it's about a 10% decline in fertility. Hmm. Uh, So that's been a steady decline since the Great Recession began. And this is a little bit of a puzzle because, as as we just mentioned, uh, fertility often bounces back. What I think is really interesting about this decline in fertility is that when you dig deeper into it, it's happening for specific groups. So for people who have more education, for people who are married, and for older women, their fertility actually has recovered since the Great Hmm. Recession. So their fertility rates are increasing. But what we're seeing is sustained low fertility for groups with less education, for younger women, and for unmarried women. So this possibly suggests that the economic recovery has been somewhat unequal, if you think that fertility is a measure of how uh, how people are feeling about their economic situation. Maybe those groups aren't feeling the economic recovery that other groups are. I think that's right. So this is one of our hypotheses for why we're seeing uh, lower fertility coming out of the Great Recession, that just the the effects of the recovery are not being felt by everyone, and they're not being felt by groups who have typically had fairly high fertility rates. So if you think about young women, women who are teenagers, but also women aged 20 to 29, those have really been the prime fertility years for women in the United States for the last several decades. But Perhaps that group who graduated from college or graduated from high school during the Great Recession, they may still be feeling the scars of that economic event. And so for that reason, they're having less fertility. Mm-hmm. In 2017, the five-year age group that had the highest fertility in the United States was women aged 30 to 34. That's really astonishing. As somebody hmm. who's been studying fertility for my entire career, I never thought we would see high fer- the highest fertility among women in their early 30s. Uh, so I, I think that's telling us a lot about women, uh, what women in their 20s are experiencing. Are there other factors involved, perhaps? Um, I think you classify it as, as unintended uh, pregnancies, those going down. Sure. So in addition to uh, the possibility that uh, economic factors are contributing 
contributing to low fertility for young women um, and unmarried women. You know, if you think about those groups, they are the ones who are historically most likely to have births that are unintended, and in particular, um, teenagers and unwed teenagers. So we've seen huge declines in fertility for those groups in recent years. So, you know, one way to think about that, if you think about my cohort, so people who uh, were born in the late 1970s and early 1980s, for that group, you would have, a, for every five of us, you would have about one unwed teenage birth. Mm. Now that's one in every 13. Put another way, the teen fertility rate has fallen to about a third of what it was uh, at its peak in the early 1990s. Right? Mm. So I think many people would view that as a good thing mm-hmm. that, that, you know, that groups who have historically had unintended births are having um, having fewer of them. We would like to try to understand why that is, too. So um, one idea is that um, through the Affordable Care Act and other policy changes, there's been improved access to contraception. Um, so, for example, women under 26, many of them are now el- eligible to receive insurance coverage through their parents uh, as, a, as a result of the Affordable Care Act. So that access to, to health care may mean that they have access to better, more affordable or more effective contraception. One thing that is not contributing to the decline in unintended births is abortion. Mm. So... I mentioned that unintended births have fallen by about 16 percent from 2007 to 2017, but abortion rates have actually fallen quite a lot over that period as well. So it suggests that this is coming from either people uh, who don't want births, either having less sex or having better or more contraception. But it's not that they're conceiving and and that that's ending in an abortion. Another thing that might be contributing to the decline in um, unintended births is technology. Mm. So, you know, you think about... um, Teenagers and people in their 20s having more access to a wide range of new technologies. So this includes, you know, streaming services, video games, um, social media applications. So, you know, one hypothesis is that as people have more interactions on those formats, they're having fewer interactions in person, right? So um, in a, another setting, I recently referred to this as Netflix and no chill. <laughs> so <laughs> the idea that, you know, if you're at home and you're by yourself um, or with your family and you're, you know, consuming these other media sources, you may be less likely to be out hanging out with your friends and engaging in these risky behaviors. So, you know, I, I think there are certainly positives and negatives to this shift in how teenagers and young people are spending their time. But one benefit may be that they're less likely to get into some risky situations, including those that would lead to an unintended birth. Yeah, I think that sound you heard is uh, a lot of parents of teenagers re-upping their Netflix uh, <laughs> sub- subscription. <laughs> So what uh, what impact does that have on on the economy? So a drop in unintended pregnancies, a uh, a sharp rise in women 30 to 34. How does that impact the economy? In aggregate, we're seeing a decline in fertility that is uh, quite large. So. As I mentioned earlier, about a 10% decline in fertility between 2007 and 2017. So that is really dramatic for a 10-year period. So a lot of people are concerned about that because if you think about things like the long-term sustainability of many of our social programs, like Social Security, you need 
a lot of workers to be able to support the aging and retired population. So the Social Security Administration estimates how many workers you have per uh, supported adult, supported retiree. So it used to be in the late 1960s that there were about four workers per every retiree. Now that's something like 2.7 and projected to be much closer to two as soon as 2032. Right. So just for the solvency of these kinds of public programs, there's reason to be concerned about our uh, declining fertility rate. Also, if you just think about the fact that to have a growing economy, we need to have workers and uh, people contributing, that there's also reason to be concerned there. However, I think when you look at this heterogeneity that we've talked about, that there is actually increasing fertility in some groups, older women and married women, and decreasing in others. I think the biggest reason to be concerned about what's going on with fertility has to do with what that's telling us about what's happening today. Mm. So we think about issues of economic inequality. This has been getting a lot of attention um, in the media and in politics recently. I think what's happening with fertility is a reflection of other kinds of inequality that are happening uh, in the United States today. So if you think about children as, you know, this is something that economists use, some language that economists use that makes us kind of unpopular, but think about children as a consumer good, right? (laughs) Heartwarming. Heartwarming, (laughs) yes. um, You know, but it it makes a lot of sense. You think about them as something that people enjoy, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But that costs money, right? Um, So if having children costs money, and we have increasingly people in our society who are able to afford them and people who are not, then I think that's cause for concern. Um, you know, I, I would worry about a case where people who want children and could provide good home for the, homes for them feel like they can't have them, that they can't afford them. Mm. And I think these declining fertility rates among uh, the less educated and among the young are perhaps a reflection of the fact that there are many people who feel like they can't afford to have children. Mm. So keeping with the consumer goods theme, we have one group who maybe can afford the luxury sedan and an, another who's looking more at uh, a budget compact. That's right. But I would put it more as, you know, there's one group that can afford to have two or three cars in the garage okay. and one group that can't afford to have cars at all. Gotcha. So, you know, I am um, a college-educated person. I'm married to a college-educated person. We both work, so we're a dual-income household. Many of our peers are in the same boat. You know, and there, my husband and I only have two children, and we are in the minority in our group. So there's an expression that I've heard among my peers, which is that three is the new two. Um, you know, that people, so people in our position feel like they can have children and can support them and are having children. Um, Um, But I think that there is real inequality in the country right now in terms of how people feel about their ability to have and support kids. And part of this as well is not only that the costs, um, there are costs of having children uh, and people's ability to pay may be different, but also the costs themselves in many ways are increasing. So, and I don't just mean in terms of the monetary costs, but you think about you know, the culture of having children today. So people are investing a lot in their kids, perhaps more than they did um, 20 or 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are all kinds of parenting blogs and parenting on Instagram and people are, um, you know, there's an expectation that you are at your kids' games and that you're taking them to violin lessons. Um, You know, 
it's certainly possible to have good and successful children without doing those things. But I think there is a cultural sense that that is what is required to have children today. And if that is also happening at the same time that we're seeing changes in income inequality, you can really see how you're going to end up in a situation where only those who are very well resourced are going to, going to want to have children and those who are not are not. So we talk about income inequality and the importance of just a, a, a steady uh, birth rate. Those seem to get into policy areas. So are there policy questions that come up? I mean, how can the government address this or should they address it and and how? So if this falling birth rate continues, then I think we will increasingly see policymakers uh, concerned for the reasons that we've discussed that have to do with the sustainability of our public programs and our ability to grow in the future. So I would not at all be surprised if we start to see pro-natalist policies. Mm. So these could be things like um, baby bonuses, where if you have a child, you get um, sometimes thousands of dollars. Some countries have experimented with these um, or other ways to financially incentivize families to have children. You know, With the trends that we've discussed, yes, fertility is declining overall. My recent study um, with Melanie Gouldy and Lucy Schmidt suggests that a big part of that is declines in unintended births. So I think one challenge will be how do we bring the fertility rate back up, but maintain what I think many people would view as a good thing, which is fewer unintended births. So I think that the trick will be to find policy solutions that make it so that Either people want to have children, are more likely to want to have children, or that those who want them can have them. Mm. So this would point to things like perhaps better child care or subsidized child care so that people who uh, might want to have kids but aren't sure that they can afford it um, and still work are able to do it. The overall decline is a question about our future, but I think looking at what's happening to different groups is really informative for what's happening today. It's a bit of a um, an, an indicator of how different groups are experiencing the economy in our society. So I, I would like for people to, um, as we think about these questions of inequality, to think about fertility as both a, a, an indicator of inequality and also a consequence that there are a lot of people uh, in our country today who don't feel like they are able to have children, even if maybe they want them. Hmm. Casey Buckles, thank you very much. All right, thank you. That's Notre Dame senior Christina Casino. She's one of six interns in the county's cybercrime unit. The students are sworn in as law enforcement officers with real police powers. These cyber sleuths manage every part of online investigations, from writing search warrants to computer forensics. Sam Altekin is another senior intern. I was surprised by how much um, almost like faith they had in us or the amount of kind of work that they expected and allowed us to do was kind of surprising because, you know, like they said stuff like, oh, you know, you'll be full police officers, you'll have full police powers. But I was kind of like, okay, like, but not really. But they really did just kind of 
give it all to us. And um, they trained us properly for it, obviously. And then they really did just expect us um, to be able to operate at the level of a full investigator. The director of the Cybercrimes Unit is Mitch Kaiser. Here, he explains how the student internship began. 2015 is when I came to work for the prosecutor again. At that time, I was also teaching here at Notre Dame uh, in the Computing and Digital Technologies program. And I talked to the prosecutor uh, and said, you know, all these high quality students that I see at Notre Dame, we should try to come up with some way that we can integrate them into doing this type of work. What we get out of it is, and I don't want to sound like you know, cheap labor, but we get very high quality, very intelligent workers uh, that are working on the cases who come into it with a lot of native knowledge already related to technology and de devices. There's probably not a day go by that I don't ask one of them something about a piece of technology. The extra investigators have allowed the unit to catch up on its backlog, closing nearly 200 cases last year. The students often process a phone's information in hours. Backlogs in other units can cause waits that can last for months. It's really unheard of to be caught up like this. And it's and one thing I thought is, well, maybe is our caseload down or our devices down that we're examining and looking at it, our caseload, we are right on par with what we were last year. Our devices are higher than what we examined last year at this time. So uh, the cases are at the same level. We're doing more digital forensics. It's just having six more additional trained investigators to do it that I can distribute the workload and it's just getting done so much quicker. There's always a series of warrants to write for any uh, investigation. Uh, it starts off with identifying, okay, who is someone? We may only have like a screen name, uh, an IP address, so it's warrants for that. Once we have an idea of who they are, uh, people don't use just one account. Everyone's got Facebook, they've got Twitter, they've got Snapchat, they've got Instagram. Those are all additional warrants to gather information. And once we get all of that, it's then more warrants to be able to go to a house to seize those items of electronic evidence, to search for stuff, to do digital forensics on stuff. So it's it's common that uh, one case could have five to ten search warrants for just one case. You know, multiply that by a hundred and some cases, that's a lot of paperwork. That paperwork is part of the forensic investigation process. It's what drew Sam and Christina to the cybercrime unit. What we are doing and what we end up doing, it's very definitive when we find incriminating evidence. Um, you know, for something like a child exploitation case, just because those are the easiest ones to, to sort of um, nail down. When you find a picture, you find a picture. And it's, it's very rare to find a picture with an explanation. Um, because it's there. There's a technique called hashing, which basically takes um, like a digital fingerprint of a mm -hmm. file. And so all sites, so you know, Google, Facebook, Dropbox, all these websites will have databases of known contraband hashes. And so whenever you upload a file to Google or Facebook or something, they'll just take it, take like the digital fingerprint, the hash of it, and then compare it. Um, and if there's ever a match, then they flag it and they say, hey, that's, that's not good. We know that's not good. 
So we get like a tip from maybe cyber tip line report from mm. the NICMIC or whatever, which is the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. So we get a tip from them that basically a screen name or whatever that came from this IP address, which is geolocated to South Bend or Elkhart or something, they send that to us because we're the closest cyber crimes unit in that area. So we go ahead and we send a search warrant out. If we only have the IP address or the screen name, we'll send a search warrant out to, let's say, Comcast or something to get the account information for that IP address. So once we've kind of determined um, with enough um, evidence that this, mm -hmm. this is the person who right. uploaded these images, then we'd write the warrant to their residence. Um, okay. So that involves... Uh, <laughs> some level of going to the residence and you know taking some pictures just to like clarify like this is where we're going um and then just writing up a full warrant to a judge to say we believe that there is um, evidence of uh, possession of child pornography inside of this inside of this residence and we would like to go in the student interns help execute search warrants for their own safety they stay in a police car while armed officers make the dangerous initial entrance into the house. Police department, search warrant! On July 11, 2017, Kaiser and a team of officers raided the home of a suspected child pornographer in Mishawaka. They got him secured. Casino wrote the warrant and collected electronic evidence after the suspect was secure. So then once we execute the search warrant in the house, we take all the devices, we get back, and then we image them, load them, and then we go through everything. The forensic softwares are, are very, um, they're pretty complicated and there's a lot kind of going on there. So kind of keeping disciplined on the steps of going through um, a forensics exam is somewhat nerve-wracking because, um, at least for me, I get a little nervous every time just because I know that, you know, this is a, a criminal case, like I need to be doing this right, or, um, or you know, something could happen in court or anything like that. So just kind of keeping that in the back of my mind is kind of always a little, um, little nerve-wracking. With pictures, you're able to filter based on skin tone. So if it's a child pornography case, you're not going to want to go through 400,000 pictures on this guy's phone. You're going to want to filter so the skin tone is above, say, 60 or 70%, and it's only going to show you pictures where like that much skin is showing on a person. So the end of the process for us is once we finish our digital exams, mm -hmm. um, we'll write up reports, explain what we found. Mm -hmm. um, if anything was interesting, we, we tag it all as evidence. And then that goes back up to Mitch. And then from there, he will kind of compile the information from all the different devices and work with um, the prosecutor's office to figure that part of the legal system out. We're not, um, we don't participate in that. Right. Um, we are like, we're liable to be called to stand and testify mm -hmm. um, if cases go to trial and um, our forensics is brought up at all. The forensics the interns do is pretty extraordinary, so it's not too surprising it has a lasting effect on them. I uh, last summer interned at Amazon and they offered me a return offer. I'm certain that it was one of those extra little bumps that was kind of like, hey, this kid's interesting, like, let's give him a shot, like, let him come through. So when they see it on my resume, they're like, what the heck is this? That's awesome. You're a sworn in police officer. Like, yeah. well, that's incredible. And then you tell them about the law situation, like, just like, 
you're in a chain of custody, you're doing uh, you're forensically examining devices. When I first came out, I, I wanted to be a computer scientist. And I wanted to kind of program mm -hmm. um, and be a programmer for uh, a while. And working in the Sour community has definitely bolstered my interest in the law. Um, not enough to overtake uh, wanting to program, but um, it definitely kind of it sort of showed me um, sort of a different path. Now what I want to do at Deloitte is I want to focus in cyber risk for financial companies. So that's kind of how I'm incorporating the two. So I had one last year, summer internship. I got a job offer out of that. I've not yet accepted, but I most likely will because I have to within nine days and I have no other job offer. So <laughs> I will be accepting that. So I will be at Deloitte in cyber risk. I mean, I definitely think I wanted to experience it just because I know I'm so sheltered, and I know that I've only experienced a little chunk of what is out there in the world, and I think it's better for me that I know that and I experience it, and I try to help prevent like what these people are even doing. It's definitely been one of the dominating experiences. I think what it kind of does is sort of give me a really cool perspective on the world that nothing else really here gives, um, to kind of you know be a part of a police force and really um, kind of witness what's happening in the world and like in the community around. It was also cool to kind of be able to talk to police officers as people. Um, growing up, you know, I, I never really knew a police officer, knew anyone in um, law enforcement. Um, and so, you know, coming to college, I was like, oh, like, you gotta be afraid of the cops or you gotta be afraid of, you know, stuff like that. But um, it was really, uh, it was really awesome to be able to like become friends with police officers and, and sort of be a part of that community. I think there's a lot of negative perceptions of police officers, especially now, and I just don't see that, I mean, at all, with everyone I'm working with, they're all awesome people, and they all just want to help prevent crime, and they all just want to help make the world better. Like, that's the side of it I'm seeing.